Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we are in our second to last sermon in the book of Philippians, Joy to the World. So you can um, open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. And uh, before we get into the text, though, um, I just want to emphasize the meeting this Wednesday. If you're a member, strongly encourage that you come to that. Uh, we call it Celebrate for a Reason. We want to celebrate uh, the way that the Lord is at work in the church. Uh, one thing we can celebrate is last Sunday, um, Jen Hills, who's coming into membership, was baptized, and it was awesome. That's my first hot tub baptism. So what we're going to do at OBC now is we're going to actually just create a drop-down menu, and however you want to be baptized, here we go. Um, so if you come to the meeting on Wednesday, uh, Jen's testimony will air there. It's a great story of how God's been at work in her life, and um, you know I'm sure in similar ways he's at work in each and every, every life in this room. This morning, as we look at the book of Philippians, we're going to address the elephant in the room, okay? Someone's got to do it. And I was like, eh, why not me? So we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, and here it is. Some Christians, in fact, I would suggest many Christians are not experiencing the joy that Paul is writing about in the book of Philippians because they are at war. They're at war. Um, and you can't have joy without peace. That's the elephant in the room. Uh, some of us are holding on to old grievances, whether real or imagined. We're forming camps. We're quick to divide over those camps. And we look at people outside of the camp as outsiders. You know, I have a quote on my desk because Here's the truth about the elephant. It likes to rear its ugly head in my heart too. And so I look at this quote often, and it says this, more suffering comes into the world by people taking offense than by people intending to give offense. Now that is real. The elephant is real. And guess what? You don't need to book an African safari to meet the elephant. No. If you're married... If you have siblings, if you live in a household with people, if you go to a work environment where there are other people there, if you grew up in a small town where everybody knows everyone, and I'm sad to say it, if you belong to a church, the elephant seems to pay visits more often than not. Why? I think it's because of this. No two people are exactly the same. We talked about that with comparison, didn't we? We said, comparison doesn't work because no two people are the same. And I also believe that's why controversy, conflict, cannibalizing, you choose the word you prefer, happens in the church. You know, it's interesting when we talk about the church from the New Testament perspective, the thing that makes it so special and beautiful is the difference. God is bringing under one roof people from all different backgrounds and worldviews, and they're coming under the same umbrella of Jesus Christ, but it's also this difference that becomes the impetus for conflict. 
And Paul's addressing that. He brings out the elephant in the room. And we're going to see that as we look at the first two verses this morning. We're in verses 2 and 3, Philippians chapter 4. He says this, Now I appeal to Uadiah in Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now here's what we need to do this morning. We have to actually hop into a time machine and go back to Sunday morning when this letter was read. We're in the Philippian church. They've just sung King of Kings. Everyone's hands were raised during the song. It was so deep and spiritual and the Old Testament scriptures was read. And now it's time for the message. And this morning, the message has got everyone stirring. The pastor is gonna be reading a letter from the Apostle Paul. Oh boy, we love Paul. We can't wait to hear what Paul has to say. So as the letter's being read, everyone's nodding, there's amens, there's ums, you know, when a good sermon, you get one of those in. But then the pastor's voice quivers as he reads the next line. I appeal to you, Uadiah and Syntyche, to settle your differences. Now, you know what happened in church that morning. Everybody got quiet, so quiet that you could hear the heads turning as people were trying to locate Udiah and Syntyche, only they couldn't find them because Udiah is sitting on that side of the room and Syntyche is sitting on that side of the room. The tension is real. Have you ever felt that tension in church? Oh boy, I remember when I was first starting to preach I had accidentally offended someone. I didn't even know I had offended. And I'm getting up to preach Sunday morning, and this person, instead of coming to me on the side and, and telling me about the offense, they're sitting in the second row with their arms folded while I'm preaching, avoiding all eye contact with me. Whew. Tense. Now, we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened with you at and Syntyche. I mean, it could have been that Uadiah was the day poor person of the church, and that's just what she did for years, and, and she just had it down. She knew how to do it, but then all of a sudden, this up-and-comer Syntyche thinks that she's going to infringe upon her territory? Or maybe they both served on a committee together, and they found themselves on opposite sides of an issue. Or it could be that Uadiah felt like the church's funds would be best spent if we helped the poor. And Syntyche was like, no, 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 we need to spread the gospel with the Apostle Paul and all of the funds need to go in that direction. Or maybe it could be that Uadiah was a Republican <laughs> and Syntyche was a Democrat and one Sunday after church, Uadiah was just spouting off on her political views, and Syntyche heard it, and now she's mad. Or maybe there was a worldwide pandemic, and Uadiah thought that it was loving to wear masks in church, and Syntyche said, mm-mm, not infringing on my rights. Or maybe, maybe Uadiah had a son named Alexander. And he 
liked Sophia, Syntyche's daughter. In fact, everybody was like, oh my goodness, they're the perfect couple. They're going to get married. But then Alexander notices Phoebe instead. And now it's really awkward. Think about the poor pastor on Sunday morning. I mean, you got little circles forming in the church. Those who are with Uadiah, those who are with Syntyche. He's getting up every single Sunday, coming to bring the word of God to the church. And people are confronting him as he's walking to the pulpit. Well, you need to get up there, pastor, and say something about this. If you don't say anything about this, well, then you're really just not taking a stance. I have to say, I feel for that Philippian pastor sometimes. Now, Paul, you get the sense that he learns about this dynamic from Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus came and paid a visit, and it must have left him feeling disappointed because as he talks about these women, he describes them as gospel warriors. Look at verse 3. They worked hard with me. Now, the language that he's using there is gladiatorial terms. Better translated, they fought side by side with me. At one time, you have these two women who are channeling their fight for the sake of the gospel, and now they have unleashed a bull elephant upon the church. What I like with Paul and his approach in the text this morning is he doesn't just call them out. He doesn't just, in the letter, say, you know, these women, like, can't you just get along? No one cares about your petty little conflict. Give me a break this morning. No, 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 no. He gives us a step-by-step guide on how to resolve conflict, and we all need that. Because all of us have experienced, at one point or another, tension, conflict, bitterness, resentment, anger, hurt, And so in the text this morning, Paul is going to emphasize a key word. The word is peace. The Greek is irenes. It comes from shalom, which is a Hebrew word. And shalom, Paul is going to argue in this text, is where the pathway of joy lies. If you have God's shalom, you'll experience his joy as well. So let's read the next part of the text where we see these words. He says, always in verse four, be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in his Beatitudes, blessed are the who? 
peacemakers. And what's the benefit of being a peacemaker? He says, they will be called sons of God. Now, in that era, to be called a son of someone was to be called, or it was to say, you are like that person. For example, in my household, uh, if one of my children auditorily process, think out loud, Katie looks over at me and she says, that is one of your children. Guilty. And scripture this morning is saying, listen, if you want to be most like your father in heaven, if you want to look like Jesus, you'll be a peacemaker. So what does that look like? How do we cultivate that? Well, we're going to see a couple of steps in the text. If you look first at verse 5, Paul in the New Living Translation says, be considerate. Probably the best way to translate it is let your gentleness be known to everyone. You get that idea? If someone's talking about you, you would want them to not say like, oh, he always speaks his mind. He's always so passionate and vociferous. No, you would want them to say, she's gentle. Jesus in Matthew 11, when he was describing his own character, he said, I am gentle and lowly in spirit. Now, remember, your number one purpose in this life is to look as much as you can like Jesus in your character. And he distills his character down to two things, gentleness and humility. Notice he doesn't say things like, I'm zealous, or I'm always finding myself on the right side of the issue, or I'm the deepest theological thinker in the room. No, gentleness, humility. And gentleness is compelling. A couple of years ago, um, you might have seen this on the news cycle, Pete Davidson, Saturday Night Live, he gets up on the air and he makes a, a, a flippant joke about um, Congressman-elect Dan Crenshaw. You remember Dan Crenshaw has the patch. He's a former Afghanistan vet and he was hurt while, you know, being in conflict for his country. And Davison makes a flippant remark about that. And then, you know, the news cycle takes over after that. People start coming down on Davidson. Social media goes off. He comes onto Instagram and he says, I really don't want to be on earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I ever tried to do was help people. Just remember, I told you so. Now that's self-loathing, right? That's depression. And this decorated veteran, Dan Crenshaw, instead of like piling on and adding to his name and reputation, like, oh, he shouldn't have said those things about me. You know what he does? He picks up the phone. He calls Davidson. He befriends him, and he speaks life-giving words to him. He says to Davidson, you know, I believe that God's got a plan for your life. And I believe that if you find that plan and you direct the energies of your life with that plan, you're going to do things in this life that you're really proud of. You know what that did, that phone call? It built a bridge. Instead of dividing and fracturing two people, two people on opposite sides of the political aisle found 
a reason to have discourse. Uh, That same year, Veterans Day, Saturday Night Live invites Crenshaw into a face-to-face with Davidson. And Crenshaw, as he's talking, he starts honoring Davidson's father, who was a New York City firefighter, lost his life on September 11th when Davidson was only a seven-year-old child. And as they were having this conversation, Davidson had thought that the cameras had shut off, and he looked over at Crenshaw, and he whispered in his ear, you are a good man. See, gentleness is powerful. A gentleness turns shame into dignity. It turns retaliation into friendship. It eliminates the vicious cycle that we find ourselves in when we're at war with one another. And here's the thing. Paul's telling us in the text this morning, if you adopt this characteristic, you have an eternal perspective. Remember, we talked about that eternal perspective last week. He says to this church, embroiled in conflict, the day of the Lord is going to be here. Now, when Jesus returns and you're looking at your Savior, do you think your political views are going to matter to you? Do you think that little local ordinance you're fighting over right now with your homeowners association? Do you think that any of the things that you actually feel so passionate and angry about right now are going to matter? No. No, the Apostle John tells us what will matter. He says in his uh, third chapter of 1 John, he says, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That means then, you and I will become gentle and lowly. Now look with me at verse six now. Paul tells us to pray. I like how he puts these two things together, these two thoughts. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now, while I believe we can apply this idea of worry to many applications, I actually believe that worry is at the center of many conflicts. What is worry? Well, worry is fear. And they say in psychological terms that there are three ways that we respond to fear. Fight, flight, you guys know the third one? Freeze. And here's the thing. There is no money or influence to be gained in flight or freeze. No. So when you turn on the news cycle or you go on social media and people are trying to gain your attention because your attention is a commodity, they are going to use fight to get your attention. And it gets increasingly worse when you realize that many of the conversations, political discourse that's happening in our country is not face-to-face interactions anymore. It's digital. I I read a book last week, author Jay Kim. He writes a book called The Analog Church. And what I like about his treatment of the topic of the digital world is he talks about how it both helps and hurts, right? Sometimes we look at technology and we're like, oh, it's all bad. Everyone should burn their cell phones. And perhaps, perhaps. But there is pros and cons, right? So the help is that, well, they've made things more efficient for us. We get a lot more done, hopefully. And they also provide us with more 
choice and opportunity in that sort of way. I can't believe it. I mean, I think about something in this, you know, little brain of mine. I'm like, oh boy, I'd like that thing. And then boop, 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 I'm on the internet and I can have that thing in my house in 24 hours. Incredible. It also allows us to differentiate. Like, for example, if your thing is techno dance music while you ride your mountain bike, you can do that. But there's always a dark side, right, when things are overemphasized, when they become all-consuming. Speed makes us impatient. Choices make us shallow. Individualize and makes us isolated. Now we live in a world where I'm having conversations with people that I know nothing about, that next hot-button issue emerges, and I'm evaluating their dignity and worth based upon 280 characters on X, formerly known as Twitter. The public discourse is in the toilet. The voices that rise to the surface, I just call them red meat people. They just throw out the red meat. They've got the people they know that are going to respond. They start getting likes and shares and attention. Level-headedness isn't winning the day. We have become a society of venters. And what venting does is it raises everyone's blood pressure because if you're trying to get attention, you have to always one-up the last thing. So now every issue that emerges is the most important thing that's ever happened before. This election cycle, 2024, the soul of our nation is at stake. It's all or nothing. And we're told constantly that you must fight if you want to save the country. But here's something I've seen in the, the life of Jesus. Jesus was willing to lose so that you could win. Isn't that incredible? And he says to his followers, you should be willing to lose for the sake of the gospel. I love what Ed Stetzer says. Listen to this quote. You can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You guys agree with that? We on the same page? Good. You can't war with people and show them the love of, what about that one? You can't be both outraged and on mission at the same time. So what does Paul say? Well, he says, turn down the temperature. <laughs> you take that temperature knob and you go, boo, this direction, right? Decompress. Stop venting about everything and start praying about everything. You hear that? Prayer is the antidote of worry. So we feed the elephant with our anxiety and our worry and our fear and our bitterness and our resentment. And, and the scriptures are telling us this morning, if you want to starve the elephant, pray and thank God regularly for what you have if you must vent, vent to God. If you vent to people, then you're just venting your peace away. And I have a feeling that there are some of us that are embroiled in conflicts right now because we spend most of our energy venting instead of praying. And if we would just reverse the pattern, we'd see so much gain in our spiritual lives. Now you say, well, how do you know that? 
Well, remember what we said in the book of Philippians over and over and over again. You are what you think. So venting keeps your mind occupied, focused on negative thought patterns. It takes your mind to dark places. It dehumanizes the people that you're called to love. That's why I love where Paul goes next in the text, uh, verse 8. He says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these, the things that are excellent and, and worthy of praise. You see what he's saying here? Again, we can apply this more broadly, but when you get into conflict, if you're at war with someone, what if you started thinking about these types of things with respect to that person. The Bible places a high premium on encouragement, doesn't it? When you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says, encourage one another, build one another up. Encouragement. You know what I love about this encouragement thing? Is you get benefit from it. Do you, do you like, Feel me on this one. I, I go up to someone like my sister Gwen, and I'm just like, Gwen, you're all heart. And it's so true. She is just such a lovely soul. And I feel good right now. And I said that to her for her good. So it benefits me as a person to extend encouragement. And I want to say the opposite is true of discouragement. I think discouragement's a lot like eating McDonald's. I mean, every time I go to McDonald's, right, it's like, boy, this was really good from here to here and then really bad the rest of the way, right? Discouragement sours the soul. But you're like, okay, Rob, great. I'm not good at this encouraging thing. You know, a lot of people don't work on that as a skill. Did you know that? Uh, they're very quick to think of their constructive criticisms, but... Encouragement? Well, how do I get better at that? I don't want to be a false person. But look at what Paul's showing us here. You just run your brain through this grid when you're thinking, right? What is true about them? Honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Rob, you don't know this person. You don't know what they're like. I can't think of any of those things for them. Well, let me just say this. I think there is something that is true of every single person, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, and that is that person has been made in the image of God, which means then that I can always find something that is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and praiseworthy in anybody. And think about this. If they sit close to you in a local church, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in them. So Paul's saying, you got to change how you think about people. If you want to be most like your father in heaven, a peacemaker. If you want to look like Jesus, gentle and lowly, you will run people through this grid. But here's the question. Okay, you're saying all this stuff about peace, but how in the world do I pursue peacemaking in a world that is just embroiled with war all the time. I like what Paul says for the last part of the text. He gives us a solid application. He says, keep 
putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. So what I get from this is Paul is suggesting that your heroes, your role models, the people that you're constantly listening to on your podcasts or reading their books or you know, associating with in a common basis, that they are not angry people, destroyers of community, but instead they are people that build other people up. If you would surround yourself with these kind of people, he's saying, you'll become more like them. I, I, I love this idea. It says that, that you become like your five closest friends. Who do you associate with? And then here's another thought. Maybe you need to be that role model too. What if you were the bringer of peace? You know, if you've been walking with Jesus for like two or three years, you're ready. Let's go. Let's start pursuing peace. Let's head in that direction. Somebody is looking up to you. Well, who's looking up to me? Your kids grandkids, Christians that haven't been walking for a long time with the Lord, people that are outside of the church, but they're spiritually interested, your neighbors who know you're a Christian. We think that when we go to war, that we're doing it to save the kids. But in reality, what we're doing is we're destroying their understanding of the faith. I I remember a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a young lady. She was, I think, eight or nine at the time. I can't remember, but she attended another local church down the road. And I said to her, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. How's the family? Oh, we're great. Okay, tell me about school. You know how school goes. Eh, it's good. It's school. Okay. Tell me about your church. And then her affect changes. She puts her hands on her hips and she says to me matter-of-factly, well, we disagree with the leadership of our church on. I was like, what? And then I just felt sad. Started thinking about the conversations around the dinner table and I started thinking like, Here you have this beautiful little girl and her singular thought, her singular focus about her church right now is a single issue that they disagree with. Not about how much Jesus loves her or how her church is her family and they're always going to be there for her or how she can be a light for Jesus in her world. No, 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 no. None of that. War disagreement. And you look out and you're like, why are so many kids disinterested right now? And it's that. We're destroying their faith when we make controversy the energizing force of what we do. When we know more about our political talking points than we know verses in the Bible. Guys, I said we're going to trust the elephant in the room this morning. It's not easy, but doesn't Paul give us just such solid principles for moving in the right direction? Be gentle, be prayerful, think positive thoughts. 
be a role model, look for role models who are peacemaker. And guess what? We need to do this, especially in 2024. We're heading for a very contentious election. And I'm challenging you, the church in Osterville, starve the elephant this year. You do that, and you get the reward of joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am just so grateful for passages like Philippians chapter 4 because I've been in controversy. I've been in conflict. I haven't known what to do with it. Uh, Whether it's in marriage or family, in the church, at work, your appeal to us is just so lofty. Be a peacemaker. And I know, Lord, that in this world of war, it is the peacemakers who shine like brilliant lights in this dark world. I pray that we as a body here at Osterville, that we would hear more and more from others, there's something different about you. You care about me. You're not interested in the debate, you're interested in me as a person. I pray, Lord, that with something so tangible as a 2024 election coming, which 2020 was ugly, 2016 was ugly, 2024 doesn't have to be ugly, at least not for us. So I just pray that you would lead us, guide us, direct us, help us to stay focused on the agenda of Christ and to focus on this kingdom of God which I am just seeing so much at work right now in this cape. Help us, Lord, to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.